listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 193. We're back after a long hiatus, and we're here to help you tackle the coronavirus. But first, the news. The vast majority of nail salon workers in the New York City area have experienced some form of labor abuse, according to a newly released report by the New York Nail Salon Workers Association a group backed by Workers United of New York and New Jersey. The survey of workers across the New York City region found that about 8 in 10 respondents reported experiencing wage theft. More than half were paid a flat daily or weekly rate, usually only about 80 to 100 bucks a day, and many didn't even know that they were entitled to a minimum wage. The findings are troubling since these problems are nothing new. As you might recall, there was a 2015 New York Times expose on abusive and unsafe working conditions within the nail salon industry in New York, And subsequently, the state passed a package of reforms, including new licensing rules and beefed up requirements for personal protective gear and safety training to deal with toxic chemical exposures on the job. But the enforcement of their rights has proven to be a struggle. Many are impoverished immigrants with limited English proficiency, so they face enormous barriers in trying to exercise their rights on the job. And salons tend to be pretty small businesses, and their owners, who are also immigrants, have often been resistant to regulation. I spoke with Clara Wheatley-Schaller, a co-author of the new report. Workers United um, has been organizing nail salon workers since about 2015. And we have a school for nail salon workers. And we also have the New York Nail Salon Workers Association, which has over 800 paying members. So, you know, we have a lot of contact with nail salon workers. And we definitely knew that wage theft was a big issue and still has remained a major issue in the industry. 82% of workers are experiencing wage theft. The vast majority of the industry throughout all five boroughs. These are also slums in Long Island. So it's not really like there are pockets where it's a problem. It's really still a problem industry wide. But also, I'm surprised by the amount. So of those 82%, the average amount is over $9,000 a year, which just seems like so devastating for low wage workers to begin with. It seemed like Cuomo was making an effort to crack down on it, but did that just not really stick? The reforms from 2015, like, were successful in certain ways. So, for example, like, we would hear back then that workers were making, like, 30 to $50 a day for, like, a 10 or 12-hour shift. And now they're making, like, maybe 80 or or $100 a day for that type of a shift. So there's still, you know, that's still wage theft. They're still being paid less than even the sub-minimum wage for tip workers, um, but it's less wage theft than it was in 2015. But what we're still really seeing is that the industry is in a race to the bottom. And for owners to compete and to stay in business, they're just not, you know, they're just doing it on the backs of their workers. And we've also heard from workers that, like, when they try to stand up for their rights at work, they're often fired. So, you know, what we want to see is that compliance shifts to the business owners having to show that they're in compliance with labor laws, which is why we're working on this bill, the Nail Salon Accountability Act at the state level that would link business licensing with labor compliance. Um, Because right now that like onus is really on the worker to be the one to go and file a complaint or go to their owner and try to like stand up for their rights to get paid the minimum wage. But that's not going to lead to industry-wide change. We need to like shift the onus to be on the owner for compliance. That was Clara Wheatley-Schaller, political coordinator of Workers United New York and New Jersey. 
I've written more than a few articles in the past about the St. Paul Federation of Teachers, who have been one of the more forward-looking unions in the past year's wave of reform-minded teacher organizing. But until this week, the St. Paul Union, now known as the St. Paul Federation of Educators, hasn't gotten as much attention as some of the other unions we've discussed on this show. That's not because they haven't been doing great work. It's because until now, they haven't been on strike. But this week, they are out on the picket lines in the SPFE's first strike since 1946. And once again, social justice demands are at the center of the union's platform. This time, according to Samantha Winslow at Labor Notes, quote, the strikers are demanding a mental health team at every school. The team would include social workers, psychologists, nurses, and behavior intervention specialists in numbers proportional to the number of students in the school, end quote. It's too bad that all these important social services fall on the shoulder of the schools, but they do, middle school teacher Leah Van Dasser, who is also on the bargaining team, told Labor Notes. We have to try to figure out a way to help. The union has been bargaining towards this contract for the last 10 months, which includes time and mediation and very little movement. In February, the members voted by 82% to support a strike. The last time the St. Paul educators came close to a strike was in 2018, which was shortly before, of course, the Supreme Court's Janus decision. They had also gone to the brink in 2014 and 2016 before each time winning a landmark contract. Beginning in 2014, the St. Paul teachers followed the Chicago playbook of organizing alongside the community for the school St. Paul students deserve, which includes smaller class sizes, family engagement, teaching over testing, and a racial equity agenda. In 2016, they negotiated support for a groundbreaking restorative justice initiative in the schools. The union created teams of teachers and community members who met monthly to brainstorm and organize, work that culminated in 2018 with what I described at the time as, quote, a deal with the district to lower class sizes, hire more EFL teachers and special education paraprofessionals, expand the restorative justice program, and press for more state funding and taxes on big businesses and the wealthy, end quote. That was also at the time that the Super Bowl was about to be in St. Paul. The union has also notably taken up the cause of police violence after the 2016 shooting of St. Paul schools worker Philando Castile by a police officer. They organized a march then from the American Federation of Teachers Convention, which was in the Twin Cities that summer, into the streets of Minneapolis, where they blocked traffic outside of U.S. Bank. 21 parents and educators were arrested during that protest, which was, again, I noted at the time, a rare moment where union members challenged the police as union members. It's worth remembering that all this groundwork that has gone into building a fighting union in St. Paul alongside Chicago, Los Angeles, and the more recent red state strike wave as we look at this strike. We are looking at a union that has in fact built and flexed its strike muscle before, if not actually put it into effect in this precise way until now, and the results will bear watching. For now, the union has returned to talks with the district as we record this on Thursday. The strike is, of course, taking place as many institutions are closing down to prevent spread of coronavirus, which includes the University of Minnesota. But we will have an update for you next episode. Sex workers are often in the public spotlight, but not the way they really want to be. They are subjected to stigma, public shaming, and alienation from many aspects of both popular culture and civil society. But now, there's an art exhibit that tries to flip the script, foregrounding sex workers' experiences, struggles, and desires around the world. The Sex Workers Pop-Up, a project of the Open Society Foundation, features artworks depicting various aspects of sex work around the world, including a shrine to the elders of the sex workers' movement, video displays, portraits, and interviews with trans sex workers, and works documenting the politics of the sex workers' rights movement. Some of 
of the exhibit focuses on local acts, such as Red Canary Song, an Asian and migrant sex workers collective that has been on the front lines of decriminalization work in the city. Unfortunately, I caught the last day of the exhibit before it finally shut down for the coronavirus, so you won't be able to see it yourself. But it does have a pretty cool Instagram, which I'll link to. Here are some words from Sebastian Cohn, Project Director for Sexual Health and Rights at the Open Society Public Health Program. At least a few of the artists are sex workers themselves, is that right? Current or former? The majority of the artists mm -hmm. are sex workers or have lived experience mm -hmm. in uh, sex work. Should we not be surprised that so many sex workers are also artists? One of the taglines for this exhibition, right, is sex workers work. So mm -hmm. uh, that's recognizing kind of the financial reason why people do sex work, which mm -hmm. is to often to, you know, so whether it's their main source of income or to supplement other insufficient income, it's an economic activity, right? Mm -hmm. So. I would think that a lot of artists who are perhaps not yet, uh, you know, able to make a living out of their art uh, might be supplementing their uh, income in various ways and sex work is probably one of those yeah. uh, ways. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, like there are many types of sex work that are, that involve a lot of performance, whether you're thinking about like uh, pornography or uh, stripping or you know erotic photography or whatever uh, so I feel like there is like at least with certain types of sex work there is kind of a, a strong kind of creative side to it mm -hmm. a lot of sex workers are performers too. yeah since this is an audio only medium perhaps you can do your best to describe our listeners. Uh, there's so many good ones. We have uh, one that I really like is over here, uh, which is um, a wall of elders. So it's um, it's a wall with a mirror in the middle of it, and around the mirror are uh, shelves that have names on them. Mm -hmm. And the names on the shelves are names of uh, individuals who've been instrumental in the sex worker movement in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also a small bowl on the side where people can write the names of uh, sex workers in their lives that they want to kind of pay homage or respect to uh, and put the name in the in the bowl. Yeah. Um, in art, as in kind of our just like our common sort of narratives and perceptions about sex work, like stereotypes are very common. Uh, I think when you when you center artists who are are sex workers themselves or who have an experience of, uh, you know, doing sex work, uh, I think you can bring out so many other perspectives and, um, yeah, you know, I think you can, you can do art about sex work that's not objectifying, like art that's actually about people's real lives. That was Sebastian Cohn of the Open Society Public Health Program. While Belabored has been away, the graduate teaching assistants at the University of California, starting in Santa Cruz and rapidly expanding, have been on strike. What began as a grading strike at UCSC has expanded to full-on strike and other actions at a variety of UC campuses. We spoke with a couple of those graduate students at UC Santa Cruz and UC Davis about these actions, the ongoing situation, the university's response, the relationship with the union, and more. I'm Scott Hunter. Uh, I've been studying literature in the PhD program at UCSC, and uh, I recently lost my spring appointment uh, because of my 
strike-related activities? Yeah, so uh, my name is Kieran. I'm a first-year cultural studies student at UC Davis uh, and currently a TA with the Chicanx Studies program. Mm -hmm. For our listeners who have been buried under a rock, um, tell us how this strike got started. Okay, so in in Santa Cruz, a conversation started about how we might go about demanding a cost-of-living adjustment, which would bring us out of rent burden generally. Um, you know, the, the idea is that uh, the average academic student employee should not be paying, you know, 50, 60, 70% of their monthly income on rent. Um, a demand was delivered in November. Um, we heard nothing from the administrators. And then uh, there, there was a chain of emails in which people people sort of described their struggles um these were like open letters to the administration and uh these as these letters sort of piled up eventually it seemed that the energy was right to call for a strike and our strike started in december at the end of fall quarter uh and what we did was we withheld uh we, we withheld final grades from, from the uh, registrar. And after a whole lot of inaction on the part of the administration, uh, back in February, we decided to escalate to a full strike, which meant going out on, on a picket line, trying to disrupt traffic into campus. And then shortly after that began, um, around... 80 of us were fired for, for failing to, to submit grades after, um, after receiving a, a letter of warning. Yeah, so that's sort of where, where we're at. In terms of things at Davis, after we heard at UC Santa Cruz that the grade strike had been declared, this was like right at the end of fall quarter um, before finals week, it started to really make waves uh, among a lot of us. And then um, some folks that Davis graduate students knew at Santa Cruz started to reach out to us. Um, a group of us kind of coalesced in like a signal message group um, right before break. Um, and people started talking about, okay, like this thing is happening at UC Santa Cruz. Um, it's pretty wild. Um, we share a lot of similar concerns about like what our situation is at Davis. So how can we, A, act in solidarity with our comrades at Santa Cruz who were putting the call out to other UCs to like really organize our own campuses? Um, and then B, also, like, what does COLA mean for UC Davis? And unfortunately, because this occurred, like, right at the end of fall quarter, um, there wasn't a lot of folks on campus. But uh, what was really cool is that those of us who were on campus, there was a group of about, I think, 20 or 30 people that had a rally and a snake march around campus um, and really started to get things going in terms of a visible movement. And then break happens and things kind of die down until, really, there had been, like, some more threats issued towards striking students at Santa Cruz and things started to look like they were escalating towards a full strike. Um, so we had called a uh, general assembly um, at the very, is it the end of January or beginning of February where we started to talk about, okay, what does COLA look like at uh, UC Davis? Um, we called a rally for that next Monday, about 50, 60 people showed up, um, which was a really great showing. Um, at least in terms of like where we were at at the time. And then since then, things have just been picking up. Um, a lot has been happening in terms of like 
teach-ins, our rallies have grown from 50 to 400, and then this most recent one a couple of weeks ago with almost 700 people. Um, and throughout that time, we've been having like general assemblies, organizing strategy meetings. Um, some of us have been down to Santa Cruz, some folks from Santa Cruz have come up to visit us, and really just like figuring out how do we blow this thing up enough so that we can uh, elicit the response that we need from the University of California Office of the President and the UC Davis admin, UC Santa Cruz admin. And as things have been escalating at Santa Cruz, our tactics have been both in solidarity with them to escalate what we're doing here, but also like, what is it like, how do we build this movement here? And then following along with our comrades at uh, UC Santa Barbara, San Diego, Berkeley, all the other campuses. Um, so yeah, it's been a very hectic, exciting time. Um, things are developing really quickly, um, but yeah, it's taken a very interesting turn and I'm very excited to see like what's, what's gonna be happening as we move into um, spring and all these, changes that might be happening due to the COVID-19 outbreak and how we can navigate that um, in statewide and campus level organizing. Yeah, so before I have some obviously follow-up questions now, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about each of you and sort of the challenges that not having a cost of living increase has has created. Like, what does it actually mean to pay 50, 60, 70% of your income in rent um, some of our listeners probably know what that's like. Others maybe don't. I'm not uh, severely rent burdened. I'm around 40%, uh, which, which is, you know, still rent burdened, but not as bad as some of my other comrades. Um, but I'm still finding that uh, I'm halfway through the last week of the month and I'm out of money, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, and that's... Uh, that's just not a, a pleasant place to be when you're, especially when you're working more than full time, you know? Yeah. And I mean, personally for myself, I like to contextualize like these, this feeling of precarity that a lot of us as graduate students are feeling um, within kind of this larger sense of precarity that folks in California, particularly Northern California, but also Southern California are feeling because of housing crises, um, lack of opportunities, particularly for working class people. Um, so it's definitely not a unique situation for graduate students, um, but it is like something like this cost of living adjustment campaign and fight is part of this larger network of struggles that's that's emerging. Um, and personally for myself, um, although I go to school at Davis, uh, I live uh, in Oakland, uh, in, in, in East Oakland, and I commute up. Um, I crash on a couch there during the week, which kind of sucks, but I'm not trying to drive back and forth and lose more of my time when I still have to work basically full-time, be in school, doing organizing stuff. Um, and I did the calculation with the PaySmore UCSC handy calculator, um, and I pay about 70% of my income on rent. Luckily, last quarter, uh, I was, I also uh, occasionally teach as an adjunct at a private college here in, uh, here in Oakland, so I was able to have some kind of, like, cushion. Um, but this quarter, I'm just doing the TA thing. Um, I also have been running out of money about halfway through the month every month. I feel like I have to debt finance my life and then I'm paying off credit card debt by taking out loans on top of the, the existing loans that I already have. And I know that this is a unique situation. Um, I'm even not in the worst situation compared to a lot of like my homies at school or like other people I've talked to at UC, UC Davis or UC, or UC Santa Cruz. So it's just like an overall sense of like we have to come to school, give our 100% in our classes, produce research for the university, teach our undergraduates, which is something that most of us love to do, do the grading and do all of that and maintain our mental health and our physical health. 
all while getting paid not even enough to survive. Yeah, it often gets missed that people who are working in higher education in some way, shape, or form are in many of the same circumstances as people working in the gig economy. So in terms of the union, which you are all members of, this has not been, this has been sort of described as a wildcat action. Um, What has been the relationship of the union to this set of actions? I think it's important to remember that, that, um, the reason we went out on a wildcat strike was because our union had sort of failed to represent our interests. And I'm speaking specifically of UC Santa Cruz. Um, I want to say it was 83% of, of voting graduate students voted to turn down this contract that got pushed through in 2018. Uh-huh. And then it got pushed through over the summer when, when people, you know, don't have, um, as much of the capacity to, to get organized. Most you know, people leave town uh, because they don't have uh, work over the summer. So, um, so we were feeling a little, you know, left behind by that. Um, and, uh, you know, as much as I uh, applaud the ULP stuff that has come through, um, you know, it's as a step in the right direction, uh, I have little trust for, for our union leadership right now. Um, and I guess the nightmare scenario, simply put, is that, that all this work leads, leads us back to a bargaining table at which um, our representatives are more interested in um, maintaining a good relation to UCOP than they are in, in really representing uh, our interests. For our listeners who aren't clear, what is going on with the ULP, with the union? Our union leadership, at least in the beginning, didn't fully acknowledge what was going on in Santa Cruz um, and even did this kind of weird thing where they created their own Cola for All campaign. Um, <laughs> but in the past couple of weeks, uh, there's been communications from our union leadership. They're, they're, they're filing claims under the unfair labor protection just in response to uh, the into how administration UCOP has been treating strikers at UC Santa Cruz. So using that as a way to get around our no strikes clause, um, which had, which is what the union is saying has been preventing them from jumping in sooner. I'm not so sure about that rhetoric, but I'm glad that there's some kind of movement um, for some kind of action that the union will be taking. A lot of those of us who are, who are organizing in the more like wildcat autonomous movements were very hesitant um, but tentatively like supporting this thing and trying to make sure that it moves along just in tandem with the wildcat actions that are happening um, yeah. across the system, which are kind of two different approaches with an yeah. end point that's still kind of nebulous, as Scott was mentioning, um, because there is a lot of questions about who's going to be on this bargaining team and mm-hmm. what it's going to mean. And if that doesn't include wildcat strikers, particularly for UC Santa Cruz, then I know a lot of us at UC Davis and other folks would feel very uncomfortable with that moving forward. So tell us a little bit more about the university's response to this. You mentioned, Scott, that you've been um, fired at least for next semester teaching. Um, But I mean, it seems like the university's response has been pretty out of proportion. Yeah, I I was hearing that that during our, our picket line, at least for the first week or two, 
the uh, administration was spending $300,000 a day on a police presence. And the police presence sort of dwindled as, as the picket continued, which was, you know, welcome. But I, I will say that for the first few days, it, 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 was, um, it was a really, like, militarized presence. Fortunately, we were able to get enough media buzz around it that the administration approached the policing issue a little more cautiously. But I, I worry with, that with this uh, pandemic that's going around, uh, however serious the disease it might be itself, I worry that um, you know public health is, is going to be a pretext to aggressively crush the kind of gatherings that, that we have thus far been able to build our movement by having. At Davis, what's been interesting is that for the first several weeks of our movement here, there was like no response from administration. It's like they wanted to kind of ignore us that we existed before we became a thing. Um, and it wasn't really, in, well, there was um, a couple of conversations with, with administration when we'd have our demonstrations. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the unique things about UC Davis is that having seen how things went down at UC Santa Cruz, and also given UC Davis's own history with like the pepper spray incident and other kind of instances of police brutality during the student movement, they're very, very hesitant to make any kind of overt approaches like that for PR. Right. But on February 27th, one thing that I, that I didn't mention um, earlier is that uh, UC Davis uh, graduate students voted to go on a grade, our own grading strike and as soon as we publicly announced that, our provost, uh, Hexter, sent out uh, a letter to all the department chairs, as well as another letter that, that was meant for the department chairs to send out to all of us academic student employees, um, basically highlighting the fact that any strikes or work stoppages or interruptions of work are uh, against our contract, and any kind of grade withholding can face consequences based off of student conduct and also um, termination in terms of our employment as well. So beyond, like, that's been the main university response. And there's also been moves um, on our online class management system, Canvas, where administration has been, has been telling faculty and also tech people to kind of scrub some of those grades. Um, so there's been some kind of interesting ways that they're trying to navigate um, the fact that at least like uh, 300 students have pledged to, to withhold grades. Um, and with this now, now with this COVID-19 pandemic um, and in-person finals being canceled next week, uh, they're suggesting either finals be held online or that professors cancel finals and just submit grades as is, right? As a way to, to attempt to mitigate the fact that um, many of these TAs are no longer submitting grades. So it's like this kind of, this kind of scramble by the administration was like, oh, wow, they actually are doing things. So as this continues to spread and um, other schools are acting, and obviously as, as we deal with this evolving health crisis, what should people who are listening to this be watching out for and how can they be supportive of your actions? Well, for one, we have a, a strike fund up on GoFundMe and we have 80 plus people who have probably received their last paychecks. So, so that, that's a good place to start. There's like a lot of uh, different kind of faculty solidarity letters. Um, there's this one like basically calling for an academic boycott of UC Santa Cruz and I think maybe the UC system as well. So that's ways that faculty 
outside of the UC system and nationwide, mm-hmm. um, worldwide can can do. And I think because our organizing strategy is going to have to shift based off of this move to digital, and I think it would be really important for labor organizers and interested people to pay attention to how students and student workers are navigating, like, what does a digital picket line look like? How are we organizing when we can't necessarily meet face-to-face? Um, and just also just maintaining pressure on on UC on the UC system, however that looks like in terms of solidarity letters, in terms of just people who are coming here who might be accepted into graduate programs here, just like making a point of being like, hey, like this is going on. Like, what does this mean for me? Right. This is one of the things that also that we've been talking with students about at like their visiting days and stuff like that. Also, just. In terms of us at, at, at UCD for COLA, we don't have a strike fund yet, but we do have a Venmo at UCD for COLA um, that we've been using to kind of like for our own programming. I think it's important also to remember that um, UC administrators have been talking about moving instruction online for a long time um, and that this has given them an opportunity to sort of ex- accelerate that and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, to 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 what uh, changes are being enforced under these uh, you know emergency conditions uh, mm-hmm. because we know that when the state takes emergency powers uh, give them up easily. That was Scott Hunter from UC Santa Cruz and Kieran Rajagopalan of UC Davis. And we will have more links to everything we talked about here at the Descent website. We are back on Belabored after a brief break in which time the world caught fire even more than usual. I thought we'd catch back up with all of you, our our beloved listeners, by talking to each other a little bit about um, the big thing that's on everybody's mind, which is this coronavirus spreading across the world. And so Michelle and I are talking to each other from our social distancing in our respective home. We're so distanced right now. There's absolutely no no risk whatsoever. Very, very distant. Um, The only will be continuing to work as usual, be freelance writers and podcasters. But it's great. I promise you that I'm not sniffling because I have coronavirus. I'm just allergic to America. Right. <laughs> but even if you did, no judgments here. It's it's all it's all good. Yeah. Six million of us are destined to get it anyway. So God. Um. So Michelle, I was down a book writing rabbit hole, which is part of the reason we were gone for the last month. So I was not paying as much attention to the beginning of this thing, um, as maybe you were. So, but you were just saying to me before we turned on the recorder that. Um, the response in places like China and South Korea has really made it possible for some of us to maybe not be as screwed as we would have otherwise been. In a way, yeah. I mean, I think um, uh, the World Health Organization, which has throughout this crisis shown itself to be <laughs> a somewhat toothless organization, sadly. Um, all they can do is basically like, you know, shame other countries into doing something about this. They can't really do anything themselves. But um, yeah, I mean, as the as the global health emergency, which is what it was initially known as, um, was kind of um, starting to crest in China. I mean, I think the government there um, snapped into action and basically had like, um, was sort of like on a war footing to deal with um, the coronavirus. And um, it's kind of amazing to see an entire country kind of um, mobilize on that scale. Uh, And it raised some interesting questions about um, 
I think there's reluctant praise in some ways for authoritarian regimes and how they can very quickly uh, snap into action and mobilize people and uh, basically put or in this case, demobilize people, right? Or demobilize people and essentially, um, yeah, like freeze things in place, right? So there were restrictions on human movement and, um, you know, social behavior that um, would obviously not be tolerated in, um, you know, these uh, Western um, democracies, ostensible democracies (laughs) such as ours. Ostensible democracies, yes. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I think um, with the South Korea, um, since it is, um, you know, it it is a a more democratic country for sure, um, they... uh, they their response um, was characterized more by just um, a lot of transparency and um, and rolling out testing even for people who were not sick. Um, but they were able to also um, mobilize people on a on a huge scale. And I think that and there's like this weird uh, that I mean in the early days a lot of the initial infections were blamed on a, a, a strange Christian sect that sort of kept to themselves. And so that sort of added yeah. another another local cultural twist to um to the to the spread of the coronavirus but um but it's been really interesting to see how like it um as this virus kind of rolls through different societies we're seeing how different types of countries um you know respond i mean italy has its own response where they're basically putting like half or maybe the entire country by this point on some kind of lockdown well now you know yeah it took a while yeah and and they're suffering for it, right? Um, as is the rest of Europe. And so, um, you know, for I think for for people on the left who are watching this, it's an, it's an interesting study. And sort of a, you know, how um, this sort of highlights the need for a really strong social welfare system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and a strong state response, but also. Um, you know, two reveals or B, was I doing A and B? Okay, B oh, <laughs> reveals, uh, reveals um, also maybe, you know, some of the, the dangers of allowing ourselves to be so panicked that we just sort of succumb to uh, whatever authoritarian strictures are imposed upon us. And, yeah. um, you know, you'd hope that the U.S. would be able to maybe find some sort of happy medium given that we have so many resources in this country, but no, we seem to have completely, utterly squandered um, every single opportunity opportunity we had to yeah. get ahead of this crisis. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've been obsessed with sort of since the beginning of this, the way that it's all about work and it shows how completely screwed up our sort of work culture is like globally, not just in the US or in sort of Western countries, but like in China, right? Like one of the effects of telling people to stay home, to lock down, to prevent this transmission of this thing was what cutting of emissions by something like a quarter or a third. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and we're going like, to see that around the world. Right. And, you know, that that's like, it's so telling of just like, the way that like, when we're forced to focus suddenly on sort of issues of social reproduction, rather than just production for production's sake, it's, it's weird how things how quickly things can change. And it's shown, sort of in general, how quickly things can change, right, where all of a sudden, you know, universities are saying, you know, we're going to teach all our classes online, which is probably not a good thing, but like you can see how quickly the world can change. And then it's showing the parts of it that are really resistant to change too, yeah. right? That we've sort like, of built infrastructure. Republicans to talk about in sick days. That's a, that's a monumental well, right. shift. But like we're seeing now like um, cities, like I, the last one I saw was Miami are like halting evictions in this moment, right? Yeah. Um, that it, 
it's amazing that we hear over and over, like, you can't just stop these things. You can't just change this shit this fast. And actually, it turns out we can. Right. And of course, I mean, just the fact that, um, you know, we have uh, clearly, you know, the stoppage of industrial production, which is on the whole, you know, you don't really want things to screech to a grinding halt generally, but it it shows you how rapidly that, um, you know, uh, when emissions start going down and like the air suddenly starts to clear up, you know, in places like Beijing, um, it's it's kind of amazing that... um, in times of crisis, um, yeah. you know, huge, there's, there's opportunity for huge change. And it could either be uh, sort of this disaster capitalism response where yeah. um, things get much worse, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of the, the more enlightened, you know, ideas end up prevailing, because people are yeah. forced in some ways to, to cope. And I just, I like, I was thinking about um, New York after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And um, how yeah. for a reef couple of months. I mean, New York had something like a universal health care system and universal right. mental health care, right? Because yeah. there's an entire population of millions of people who are, you know, to varying degrees traumatized. Right, um, and we just had a massive infusion of federal um, support. And um, yeah. there were enough, you know, nonprofits on the ground to sort of, you know, try to take advantage of that however they could. But, you know, yeah. it was this sort of in 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 a way, it was it was sadly it was kind of a one off, but it also showed that you know when things get really extreme, um, yeah. some of these ideological tensions and partisan bickering and all these other things kind of melt away. And I guess um, ultimately, it's always it's it's the it's working people who are sort of at, the, at most at mercy of their circumstances, right? right absolutely. Um, and you need and you like the more extreme the circumstances are, the more likely it is that people in authority will start to pay attention to what yeah. people on the bottom of society pay like, you know, have to deal with every day. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been so interesting is that like the people who have been spreading this disease around the world are rich people who are global travelers. And I, I mean, I say this as somebody who just flew back from the UK, like, obviously I'm part of the problem here, but the, like the, the one that really struck me was that the first case in, in uh, the Congo was from a Belgian, which is just like high colonialism. Yeah. But you know, um, that, and that, also, that, like, um, in Italy, the yeah. rich parts of Italy are spreading. Right. Like Milan is the but North. Also, right. Yeah. And like that, like, the UK health minister has coronavirus. I just saw something about Justin Trudeau is self-isolating. Like, you know, like the powerful are actually getting this and it will still, we should not be under like any illusions that it will not hit working class people the hardest. But like, it is fascinating to see that like the way that globalization works, right? Is that like some people have free movement and other people don't and borders, you know, border controls are always border controls for some people and not for others. And so when you look at who is passing through those borders regularly, you're looking at rich people. You're looking at, you know, this tweet about the guy next to Donald Trump at one of these recent, you know, meetings is, has now tested positive for coronavirus. And you're just kind of going like, Right, that's the world we've created. Right, <laughs> trying to suppress the Schadenfreude. That's well, <laughs> you know. Um, but, like, but yeah, that, it, it is true. Yeah. But also, you know, it, it does also mean that it's probably only a matter of time before it hits the poorest people. And that at that point, I mean, we hear about these cases too in some ways because they are prominent individuals, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, and so it's it, it's yeah, it's it's worth. I mean, I, I I don't think we've, yeah, we've definitely not seen the worst of it here in New York or even in the U.S., but no, no, I was just no. thinking about, like, the latest wave of deaths that happened. They're all concentrated in, like, a an, in a nursing care facility in in, uh, in the wa- in Washington State, right? And so it's yes. just so emblematic of, um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really like some 
like old people, like one old person got infected and infected everyone else. I mean, it was, they were visitors, right? They were like the people who are advantaged in life and they could go from place to place. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately sort of infected, infected people in, in nursing homes. Right. And when we think about um, the other angle on that is when, you know, people who are in nursing homes, it can spread very quickly, but also like the healthcare workers who are working in people's homes who are are much harder to follow and track yeah. um, when we're talking about home care workers yeah. who maybe see multiple patients, all of whom are at probably increased risk for disease. Right. Um and they don't have paid sick time, right? Because we have an, you know, law in this country that has said that a certain kind of home care worker isn't really a worker at all and therefore doesn't get any working production uh, protections. Right. And they also, um, you know, maybe they may be undocumented, right? They may be all sorts of barriers that they face in terms of seeking appropriate medical care. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, they, you know, if they if they have no real job protections and they could very well be fired if they try to take the day off. Um, I think yeah. there's, there have been studies that have shown that, you know, um, people who have requested um, sick time, uh, many of them have either been threatened with losing their job or have lost their right. job as a result. And, um, you know, right. this is a reality right. that people face. Conversely, we see that, you know, when paid sick days are granted, there is a definite sort of, you know, a, a correlating uh, impact on reducing flu transmission. We, you right, know, exactly. we've, we've seen that. Um, yeah. I think when H1N1 happened, I mean, they did mm -hmm. some epidemiological mapping studies and they showed that, you know, there was, you know, had people had paid sick days, you know, um, their, their chance of both, um, you know, uh, being at risk themselves and putting others at risk was greatly reduced, right? And, and of course, who doesn't have paid sick days with like people who work in restaurants and, you know, yeah. daycares and... Right. Right. The whole condition of like the quote unquote gig economy is working class people who don't have any sort of labor protections providing services to rich people who are going to be, you know, quote unquote, self-isolating and social distancing. And um, who's going to be bridging the gaps in those social distances is, is delivery workers, right? Who's going to be bringing you your massive shipment of toilet paper from Amazon or whatever it is, right? Is somebody who doesn't have any ability to stay home, to go get tested, to get care if they are sick, um, to get care for their kids if their kids are sick. Um, yeah, and it's the way we deal with risk in society is um, often just a completely sort of privatized <laughs> response, right? And so, right. Um, you know, if, if our response to uh, to a growing public health emergency is to, you know, hole up and um, just, you know, order tons of stuff into our apartment and not leave. I mean, somebody that, that will subsequently put someone else at risk, right? And there's no, there's no safety net there. There's no uh, system there to uh, support those people because um, they're sort of the shock absorbers for any kind of global health emergency or any kind of public, uh, public right. disaster like that. And meanwhile, we've got Lamar Alexander saying that, you know, the Senate won't act until after recess. And Mitch McConnell saying he'll block the House passed bill that includes, you know, sort of basic things like mandatory paid leave and extended unemployment insurance and free testing because it's a job killer, right? Like, oh, excuse me, it creates a thicket of bureaucracy that would... Right. Of course, I'm going to sneeze while we're recording this, right? <laughs> it's, um, I think it's only a dry, it's only a dry cough that you need to worry about. For now. Yeah, no, it's just, it's the, the worst part of this, right, is it's allergy season. It's yes. spring. Everything's blooming. Everybody's allergic to everything. Yes. So and even sadly, if like the sneeze yes. is allergy related, but you have coronavirus and you're sneezing on things as I'm illustrating perfectly here. Right. 
And also, I mean, this goes to, I mean, um, the, that's basically the ripple effect that people are afraid of, right? I mean, the the, the, the risk um, sort of behind this pandemic is not that everyone will get sick and die. It's just most people have mild symptoms, but they will flood into emergency rooms. Then people yeah. who are, you know, lower in the triage will not get the care that they need for other things. You no, know, exactly. And, and of course, and you like, know... yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, um, there was just that survey that was released by National Nurses United talking uh-huh. about how so many nurses do not have ready access to the personal protective equipment that they need. You know, they haven't yeah. been fully briefed on what to do. And like, these are frontline healthcare workers, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the reality is, it's like, right, I was just in the UK. The UK has been um, suffering cutbacks to the National Health Service for decades. And this was a big issue in this last election, sadly, not successfully enough. But so they're already like dealing with a strained system, but they have a system that is designed to care for everyone. In the US, we have a system that is not designed to care for everyone. Right. right. We literally don't have capacity right now, tomorrow, to give people universal health care. Right. Like this is when we're talking about the realities of Medicare for all. This is one of them yeah. is yeah. that we have a system where people who don't have insurance, what do they do if they're sick? Well, they either stay home, work sick, suffer, or if they're really sick, they go to the emergency room and the emergency rooms have to treat them. And like you're saying, right, the emergency rooms are not actually the best place for most things, but because you have to be treated if you go to the emergency room. Right. Like I was and trying to explain this to English people who are just like, well, what happens? And I was like, well, um, a lot of people die. Yeah. And a lot of people go to the emergency rooms yeah. and then end up in, you know, decades and decades of medical debt. Right. Um, it's, and we're, you know, we're here, I, we have a system in which people are even afraid to go to the emergency room, right? Like, the, you know, the, I, I think there's a, there's an article in Vox that came out a while back about how parents literally like park outside the emergency room in the parking lot, afraid to go inside while their yeah. sick kids are with them, right? right? Because that's, that's how they ration care for themselves. Like we talk about like death panels, like, no, we're, we're living through a death panel right now because we have yeah. insurance companies acting as the gatekeepers on who gets to live or die. Right. And, and, you know, this is just, um, it's, it's such a friggin' horrific moment to be in where like, we're watching and I don't want to make this all about the democratic primary because that's just a miserable subject that usually isn't our purview. Um, but poll after poll in every state that's voted, whether Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden has won them, has said that people would prefer a Medicare for all type system, right? So we are in a moment where like people are very, very aware of the limitations of the system we have and they want a better one. Yeah. And we saw this even in Nevada where, you know, the Culinary Workers Union, um, the leadership didn't support Medicare for all, but their workers overwhelmingly voted for Bernie Sanders. Um, this, it's like, it's determined to sort of prove that like we're right. And it's it's sometimes horrifying to like, you know, to be like, I know, I mean, we say this all the time that like we live in a society that doesn't value the lives of the poor and doesn't value, um, you know, caring for everyone. And like, we know this, but it's also still always horrifying and shocking to sort of watch it play out in new and terrifying ways. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, not to dwell on the Democratic primary, but like we're going to have a Democratic debate uh, this Sunday to an empty room, right? <laughs> because we're yeah. living through a public health crisis. They're going yeah. to be debating health care in the middle of, you know, basically a debate that is like exercising basically like a form of self-quarantine yeah. because they're afraid of passing around a, a virus people. So, I mean, it's just sort of like we're living through a gigantic uh, like just this ironically, we're just living. We're just basically like a case in point for every 
<laughs> every social crisis that we were trying to describe. But yeah, I mean, it's, um, but it's, it's also amazing that like, I mean, um, when you, when you're working, when you're um, reacting to crisis, um, it can lead to, you know, like necessity is the mother of all innovation. So it can lead to some policy breakthroughs, but I think on this healthcare thing, sadly, like there isn't, um, it's going to be dealt with like a, like a one-off, you know, at best right. if, we, if we even right. respond. And so I'm just, you know, sort of dreading the day when, uh, you know, even if they roll out paid sick days temporarily and like temporary boost to unemployment right. insurance, like w there's going to be a yeah. day when the Republicans are just like, oh, well, it's, uh, we're just going to wrap it up now. Like, you know, but like it's is, done. This is it's a over. thing, this is a thing that I've, I'm actually sort of heartened by the response that I've seen from organizations who are sort of making these demands for temporary things like moratoria on evictions and are, are doing this in a way, like I got an email just a little bit ago from United for Respect, which is of course used to be the organization that you've heard about a lot on this podcast called Our Walmart. Um, and they immediately pressured Walmart into giving people temporary paid sick days. And now they're petitioning them to make it permanent. Yeah. And that's um, a really, really smart thing to be doing in this moment, right? Yeah. If you are organizing around these issues, um, there's a list of demands that grassroots organizers have made um, that friend of the show Kelly Hayes has posted that we'll link to on the Descent website. Um, but people saying like, okay, we can demand these things temporarily. And once we see that we can do it, then we can agitate to make it permanent, right? right and this is right. sort of like what the Republicans have been doing forever with like tax cuts, right? right? Like they're like, oh, it's a temporary tax cut. And then conveniently somehow they're never rolled back. Right. And um, we have to actually think about that in the same way now, which is like, oh, temporary worker protections. Right. Well, actually we need to make them permanent. Right. And I think um, this reminds me of like the conversation that was happening around the stimulus, like after the right. recession and people you know, like a paradigm shift in the way welfare is delivered. And like, it did lead to a meaningful expansion of some programs. But, right. you know, it, it's again, it's it immediately returned to like this war of attrition where, um, you know, things that were temporarily rolled out to deal with sort of the immediate um, circumstances of the financial crisis. Once that crisis kind of dissipated, or maybe didn't dissipate for everyone, but dissipated enough that the financial markets felt secure again, um, right. things sort of snapped back to the status quo. And it's sort of like you know that I mean this is this is why you know organizers need to be doing the work on the ground and and you know because policymakers right. will sort of regress to the mean whenever they can and so it's sort of like every tiny little incremental victory you need to sort of dig in and cling to it and make sure that um, yeah. it doesn't get sort of pushed back. Yeah, but I think that the other thing that we are learning again is how quickly things can change, right? From the sort of emissions falling massively in China to, you know, how quickly organizations can, in fact, shut down, um, how sort of non-essential work can really be just, like, stopped. Yeah. Um, we we should learn from that, that, like, we can actually respond to climate change. Yeah. You know um, what I mean? Yeah. Um, I was having a conversation with a very dear friend um, in London the night before I left, and, we, and he's doing work around the Green New Deal with um, the organization Commonwealth, which we've had uh, Matt Lawrence from Commonwealth on Belabored recently. Um, and yeah, and saying like, oh, right, this proves, though, that we can change the way things happen, right? That we can actually really can change things rapidly. Right. We really can if we take it seriously and not only in like an authoritarian country, but actually in a democratic way to say like, oh, actually, wait, like these responses that we had to this, which make us put sort of, I mean, 
a pandemic is nothing if not a demonstration of the ways that we're all interconnected. And like, no matter how much we talk about social distancing, which is quickly becoming my least favorite phrase, we can't fully distance ourselves from each other, right? We're also seeing, but like I live in West Philadelphia and there's like networks that are already forming of just being like, we're in this neighborhood. How do we check on people who are like maybe immunocompromised or maybe older or maybe can't get out to do their own grocery shopping? How do we actually like respond as a community to this thing, which like it does require us to like not sneeze on each other, but it also requires us to like think about other people's needs because right, right like you and I are relatively young, healthy people. I'm not so much worried about myself, but I'm worried about like the effects of the world of like me getting something and spreading something because I don't, you know, take the time to take care of myself. It's, it's this actual demonstration of that, the, you know, the AOC and Bernie line about fighting for somebody who isn't you. Right. And Um, fighting for somebody that maybe you'll never know that like you not doing a thing kept people from getting a thing that would kill them. Yeah. And it also shows the connection. It shows the connection between sort of this idea that we call, you know, self-care, which is probably an overused term at this point. But um, the fact that, you know, it's it's crucial. Um, Part of like mutual aid and support is um, taking care of yourself as well as each other and finding a way to, um, you know, uh, meet both of those priorities. And I think that um, in light of this public health um, kind of panic that we're living through. I mean, we see sort of the some of how it brings out some of the worst in people, right? We have these like racist um, reactions on Fox News, sort of blaming everything on like treating this virus like it's like a foreign invasion from from China or some other country, and yeah, um, exactly. and sort of it can it can turn people um, towards being extremely close minded, right? And 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 it can bring out all sorts of prejudices and and sort of the the most sort of selfish impulses, but it also right. um, can put people into a survival mode in which they genuinely feel like they need to protect, you know, their, their fellow human being. And so yeah. it's, we're sort of, it's, um, I don't know, the stakes are, are high in a public health crisis because we're, we're put at that tipping point where, um, you know, it can either bring out the worst or bring out the best in us. Um, and yeah. sadly we have a, we have a political system that, that benefits from bringing out the worst in us. So <laughs> we need to, you know, do something about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell, right, was the, about this, about the way that that disasters can really bring out solidarity with people. And I think that that's a really important thing to understand and to cling to and to maybe try to learn from and draw out of this moment of saying, like, we do have the capacity to deal with major crisis. We do have the capacity to deal with it quickly. And we do have the capacity to deal with it yeah. in a way that, like, is about solidarity that is thinking about the people who are um likely to be hurt by the way we've organized things like i saw bradley balco was tweeting about um misdemeanor courts usually being places where people who are charged with relatively low level things are packed in next to each other and that suspending um essentially just suspending misdemeanor whatever who cares stop arresting people for dumb shit um would be a reasonable response right yeah yeah I was just looking at a, a news article. Um, uh, I think the uh, the Italian government um, provided um, a suspension of mortgage payments across the country in yeah, response to the coronavirus. Right? And so there are all sorts Look of things that, we yeah. Can do this. yeah. And, you know, Trump instead wants to bail out the oil industry and we have to actually just be like, no. Right. Like this time around, you know, because this is likely to cause a, a global financial crisis and um, 
like in addition to everything else we actually have to be prepared and mobilized and we are like even you know even if bernie sanders doesn't win the primary like the left is stronger and smarter and better organized than it was in 2008 and we have to demand that the people get bailed out this time around not the friggin banks right right? and and like sort of uh and organizing i mean uh, the thing of organizing in a time like this is that um we're sort of automatically organizing on behalf of people who um just you know whole swaths of society that are almost completely disenfranchised right i mean you're think about the people who are most going to be most vulnerable to this pandemic i mean um i think human rights watch put out something about um people in u.s prisons right they're they're I mean, there's no there's no real conversation going on about who's going to care for those people or how no, those people are even going to get tested. Um, except for that Andrew Cuomo is using them as cheap labor to produce hand sanitizer. Exactly. So case in point, right? Yet another case in point, like prison yeah. labor is going to be uh, making hand sanitizers for for other uh, for other more privileged New Yorkers. And yeah, and I think um, right now, I mean, um, I know like the pandemic sort of like eclipses all other news stories, but there's still um, like a humanitarian well, crisis unfolding at the story. border and even at the Greek border, right? Where there are, um, you know, a, a bunch of refugees just sort of being um, <laughs> like basically like, you know, pushed um, pushed across a, a extremely precarious land border and, and placed in these detention facilities facilities that have no resources to care for anyone. And, and so, I mean, these are sort yeah, of absolutely. the people at the margins of society that, um, that right, like our, our conversation hasn't even gotten around to touching on that yet. Um, so, you know, there's, um, you know, we, we haven't seen uh, the worst of this crisis sort of in its, uh, f- you know, in its physical and, um, you know, health medical manifestation, but we also haven't seen um, how this debate is going to unfold in terms of um, testing us in terms of how much we can empathize with the people who have the least voice in all of this. Yeah, right. Because I mean, think of the places where we sort of concentrate and warehouse people. I mean, the term concentration camp is, is really loaded right now to use because, you know, everybody obviously is like, well, it's not the Nazis. So, sure. but like, it is literally a place for concentrating people, which is the thing that we are trying to close down in terms of spreading disease. And that is a real, 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 real thing we should be paying attention to now that you have just this, yeah, these spaces where we're warehousing undesirable people and we are creating those spaces where they're, they're much more likely to die. Right. And part of the program is just cruelty, right? I mean, that this is, I mean, the, the, the awful health conditions in, in jails and prisons are, are, are meted out in a punitive way, right? right. This is not like some sort of accident of, of neglect. It's it's like malign right. neglect. And with no. detention centers, it's the same thing, so. Right, it's intentional and it's it's horrible and violent. And I think, you know, the, the moment of being like, oh, well, you know, we have a travel ban from Europe now. So like, oh, great, it's all equal. Like, no! <laughs> except except the UK, for some reason, they're exempt from the travel well, ban. Well, you know, because Boris and, and yeah. Trump are going to have their new transatlantic whatever. And, and you know, I should say this as somebody who yeah, spends a lot of time in the UK these days. Hey, but coronavirus um, be damned. We must have that trade deal. Well, anyway, that's a whole other belabored episode once we survive yes. the, the immediate crisis. But um, so I mean, we should put out a call to our listeners to mm-hmm. have them write to us with stories yes. about how they're dealing with it. I mean, has has your job been suspended? Are you worried about, you know, getting laid off as a result of this crisis? Are you a gig economy worker and you don't have paid sick days because you're not considered an actual employee? Like, mm-hmm. you know, so tell us about are you a prison on. worker who's being yeah. forced to create and 
drinking hand sanitizer or right. do you know somebody who is? Right. Are you, um, are yeah. you making hand sanitizer in a place where you don't have soap and water? <laughs> are you a flight attendant? Are you any number of workers who are on the front line of this? Um, because we want to hear from you. And yeah, um, let us know. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Um, and now we will segue into a much uh, more wonky discussion on the need for paid sick, de- sick days and paid medical leave and uh, why the U.S. is unique among wealthy countries in, in not having having these things. Um, so uh, we're going to talk to Deborah Ness of the National Partnership for Working Families. In the last few weeks while we've been away, it seems like our entire world has been turned upside down. The COVID-19 outbreak that is spreading around the world has led to a massive health crisis, of course, but it's also led to unprecedented restrictions on movement and mass shutdowns of schools and workplaces, along with the utterly chaotic response by the White House. And it turns out that this pandemic isn't just a health crisis, but it's also a labor issue. Currently, state and federal policymakers are scrambling to propose measures to provide relief to workers whose jobs have been upended by workplace closures, as well as the direct impacts of the coronavirus itself. The COVID-19 outbreak underscores the need for paid sick days, something that nearly every wealthy industrialized nation other than the U.S. already grants to workers. But according to the National Partnership for Working Families, there is a huge disparity in access to paid sick days between the poor and wealthy in the U.S. 93% of the highest paid workers have access to paid sick days, yet only 30% of the lowest paid workers do. The lack of paid sick days disproportionately affects Black and Latinx workers, of course, and yet studies have shown that paid sick days can significantly reduce the risk of transmission of the flu. Similarly, many workers lack paid family and medical leave, which requires a more extensive payroll tax-funded program that provides several weeks or months of paid time off. It's currently only available in some states. Paid sick days and paid medical leave, together with universal health care, are critically needed even during normal times. And in times of crisis, it's even more critical that people have universal access to affordable medical care so that they can get tested and treated without having to worry about how to pay, and also that they have universal protection when it comes to taking time off of work without losing wages. I talked to Deborah Ness, president of the National Partnership for Working Families, about steps that lawmakers and the White House can take to help deal with this crisis. First, I'll say that the coronavirus crisis that we're in the middle of right now is really shining a light on a problem that is not new. This is a problem that has been harming workers and families for years and years. It is a lack of paid sick days, a very basic workplace protection, and we are one of the few advanced countries in the world that does not guarantee people the right to earn paid sick days. There is a a bill that we have proposed in Congress uh, led by Representative Rosa DeLauro and Senator Patty Murray uh, that would allow all workers in this country to earn paid sick days um, at a reasonable rate. Um, and that is something, if it was in place, we would not have Congress scrambling right now to try to pass some kind of emergency provision that would enable people to stay home when they're sick. And really, that's the crux of the problem with not having paid sick days. We know the best way to stop contagion is for people to stay home if they have symptoms or they feel sick. But how do you do that if you don't have paid sick days? It means that you either, uh, in many cases, um, take leave without pay. But if you're a low-wage worker, um, you could also um, lose your job. 
And it's not just a public health problem. It is also an equity problem. If you think about who does and doesn't have uh, paid sick days in this country, if you look at the highest paid workers, 93% have paid sick days. If you look at the lowest paid workers, those workers, it's only 30% of workers that have paid sick days. And then think about who those workers are. They, they tend to be in the jobs that interact with the public the most. They are often at the highest risk themselves, but they also are uh, folks who are vital to our economy and who we depend on, but who are interacting with the public constantly and the very people you want to have stay home when they're sick. So it's people like child care workers, people like food service workers, restaurant workers, um, people even in the construction industry, people in the hospitality industry, most of the retail industry, people who are who are interacting with you on a regular basis. So these people are very often in a position where if they get sick and they need to stay home, they have to choose whether or not they put their job at risk or maybe they take a cut in their pay, and that means cutting back on groceries or that means maybe not being able to make the rent or maybe not being able to put gas in their car. It's a very serious problem. When we're talking about paid sick days, I mean, that is, that's one that's one measure, um, and I know that a number of cities have adopted it, but there's also um, paid family and medical leave policies, right, which offer sort of more extensive benefits. And is that more appropriate to think about in terms of solutions or, or sort of measures to cope with this virus outbreak, since it seems to be kind of like a long-term thing, or at least it, it may debilitate people and businesses for well over, you know, five days, or you know, it might be a few weeks or even months. That's correct. So, yes, paid leave is uh, paid family and medical leave is another um, workplace protection that this country badly needs. And again, we are well behind the rest of the world, the rest of the um, major industrialized advanced nations with, with, with good economies, for the most part, have paid leave so that when you get sick or when you need to take care of a loved one or when you give birth or have a new child, um, you're able to take the leave that you that you need in order to either recover or care for your loved one. Um, in this country, we are way, way behind. Now, paid leave is particularly important for people who have serious illnesses. The Family Act, uh, which um, has been introduced in Congress, um, both the Senate and the House, Senator Gillibrand and uh, Representative Rosa DeLauro, again, are leaders. Um, the Family Act would provide people with leave uh, that is paid, with some amount of pay um, that they could live on, and it would apply to workers no matter what job they were in, um, no matter whether they were part-time, self-employed. Uh, it works like an insurance program where there'd be a small payroll contribution from both employers and employees, and it would be something that was available to everyone who needed it for family and medical leave reasons. And and for many families, that's the difference between um, not only taking the time they need to care for themselves or their families, but it's the difference between uh, plunging into a cycle of, of uh 
economic insecurity, um, sometimes losing jobs, homes, cars, uh, livelihoods. Um, you have people with high rates of um, medical bankruptcy as a result of not having paid leave um, at the times that they need it. Can we have like an emergency paid leave system set up quickly for to deal with something like this? Or is that more of a long-term measure that needs to be worked over in legislation? So what I think we need most urgently right now is a solution to the fact that people cannot stay home when they're sick. And I believe that the proposal that Representative DeLauro and Senator Murray are pushing, which is an emergency proposal to make at least 14 days of paid sick days available to workers, would be a really good solution. Because what what paid sick days does is it allows you to stay home if you have symptoms that could be the coronavirus or maybe it's symptoms of the type A flu. Um, You may not know until later whether or not you actually have COVID-19 or whether you are suffering from a bad respiratory infection. Either way, right now we're telling people if you show any of those symptoms, stay home. Um, If you are talking about paid leave, paid leave is designed for longer-term illnesses, and usually um, it's only uh, provided if it turns out to be a serious illness. So you wouldn't want to have a situation where people take the leave and then are later told, oh, but you didn't have COVID-19, so really we're not going to pay you for that leave because it wasn't a serious medical condition. You just had run-of-the-mill flu. Um, that's why the emergency legislation to get at least 14 days of paid sick leave is so important right now because you want people, when they feel any of these symptoms, to be able to stay home and take care of themselves and not spread whatever germs they're carrying to other people. There have been other measures that have people have brought up, like uh, accessing emergency unemployment insurance, um, like sort of payroll tax credits. Um, are those part of a package that could, you know, possible package that, that could be rolled out? I mean, I, I know maybe in this so, Congress it would be tough, but... Yes, well... I'm hoping this Congress is thinking seriously about what they need to do in order to put the families, the workers and the families in this country first. I think there are some very good immediate steps we could take. Paid sick days is one of them, but um, enhancing our unemployment insurance system, absolutely. That is an immediate way of helping workers who very likely will be laid off or may, may, uh, we may see businesses closing. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the longer-term economic impacts are, um, but there's going to be some very harmful economic impacts on working families. So unemployment insurance, beefing that up is, is really important. Um, so is increasing food security. So um, there's a need immediately to look at things like our SNAP program and the WIC program and school lunch programs. Uh, There are going to be many people, if you tell them they have to uh, stay home or they're quarantined, uh, they are not going to have three, you know, weeks worth of grocery stockpile. These are folks who are living week to week. They are barely making ends meet. Many of them have children who depend on the the lunches that they get at school. Um, 
right now is a time when we should be expanding the SNAP and the WIC programs and making it easier for people to access those benefits. And we definitely should not be going forward with the kinds of work requirements that this administration has been putting in place. I mean, it's it's so ironic to tell people that if they need food assistance, they have to prove that they're working when the very reason they need the food assistance is because they've been laid off or they're sick. So, um, and the other thing we know is that in communities um, where you don't have things like paid sick days, you tend to have higher rates of of illness, so higher rates of flu. That's been already shown. Um, and uh, those school systems have a much harder time shutting down, even though they might know it's the right thing to do from a contagion point of view. They also have to consider what's going to happen to the kids who depend on those school lunches. So, um, you know, we need to be figuring out ways that we can make those school lunch programs work for families that are quarantined, work when schools are closed down, um, because children and families are going to go hungry. So I would say at the top of my list, paid sick days so people can stay home and not lose their jobs, um, enhancing unemployment insurance, making sure people have food uh, that they need, um, and making sure that the folks who are in those jobs on the front lines of interacting with people, of caring for people, actually have the right kind of protective equipment. Um, and are we protecting them and are we protecting the public adequately? Uh, that's another piece of action that Congress needs to be be taking. Um, so I don't think that tax breaks are going to help um, any time um, soon. I, I think, you know, that might be a something to consider down the road, but um, providing tax breaks to companies is not going to help the, the worker who has symptoms and needs to stay home and is putting their job at risk. I don't know if um, you you have a particular policy solution to this in mind, but I was just thinking about, you know, we have schools that are shut down while some parents are still um, actually working. I guess, is there a child care solution or, or at least some way to allow parents to take time off um, to watch their kids if they can't send them to a daycare because the daycares are all shut down? I'm just trying to think about what parents will do in a situation like this where you have like multiple <laughs> institutions and workplaces closing down at the same time. That's right. So I think that, um, again, paid sick days would be one form of assistance um, because oftentimes those schools are shutting down because people, children are, are showing symptoms or there's, there's illness in the community. And um, if you have uh, parents who are able to use their paid sick days in order to take care of their kids, um, that will help. And the proposal that Representative DeLauro um, is promoting in the House right now would, in fact, make those paid sick days available to parents when schools shut down. And for workers who are um, perhaps not considered regular employees, people who are working on contracts or people who are part of the gig economy or they're temp workers or whatever, is there a solution in sight for people who kind of fall outside of that category of regular employment? That's going to be one of the toughest um, arenas for us to um, provide support in because technically um, those workers, those Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, um, they are not considered 
um, employees, and they're not covered by by the regular set of laws that cover the workplace. So right now, there are very few solutions for those workers, and I think emergency legislation that would that would include some support, financial support for those workers is is very badly needed. I think there are no, um, and that's a that's something we have our eyes on for future work. You know, what do you do as increasingly more people are in this gig economy where they're not technically considered um, employees um, and therefore have no benefits at all? Um, and just. To pull back a little bit, I think that it's interesting that we're, this country is having a conversation about trying to reform healthcare and the need for universal healthcare at a time when we are uh, dealing with public health emergency like this. Do you think the country's response or lack thereof to the coronavirus points to the need for having a comprehensive healthcare system that covers everyone? Oh, for sure. Um, we absolutely need to continue to expand coverage until every person in this country has access to affordable, quality, comprehensive coverage. There's no question about that because there is no way for people to even know if they have the COVID-19 virus if they don't go to a doctor to get tested. If you don't have health coverage going to a doctor, maybe more than you can afford. Um, yes, so this is shining a, a huge spotlight on the fact that we have millions of people in this country who can't even afford to go to the doctor to get tested. Um, on top of that, we have another problem in this country. We have um, we have gotten to a place where, unfortunately, political ideology is often um, uh, put before scientific evidence, and. I think our response to this coronavirus epidemic has been less than ideal, uh, primarily because we have <laughs> we have not um, allowed our medical experts and our scientists to do what they do best and to be the ones who are guiding us in um, understanding what's at stake, what the severity of the problem is, and what we need to do about it. Instead. Uh, we, we continuously in this administration see that science and evidence get overridden by uh, political ideology. And that's a huge step backwards for us. So, yes, this points out the need for universal um, uh, coverage, everybody in this country having access to affordable health coverage, but it also points out the fact that we also need a strong public health system. You know, the public health system isn't something you can turn on and off on a dime. Uh, we need serious investment in both um, our, our public health infrastructure and our public health workforce, and we need to make sure that we're, we're operating based on science and evidence, not um, political ideology. The bill that is in Congress right now, does that have like a sunset period or is it like a temporary 
like emergency measure? I guess like does this expire at some point and, and then will we have to have a debate over whether to continue the benefits? Or... Right, right. I think the bills being proposed right now are um, are focused on a particular period of time. I have to say this is moving so fast we haven't been able to see actual legislative language so I can't answer that question for sure. But I think these are these are measures intended to deal with this particular crisis. What I'm hoping is that as we once we emerge from this crisis, that we will say never again are we going to be in a position where we're scrambling to give people paid sick days, or we don't have uh, people don't have the ability to take paid family and medical leave when there's a serious illness. Hopefully, it will be difficult for the White House to just say, "Oh, we're going to take it back now." <laughs> Well, um, it's very hard to predict this White House. It all hinges on what happens in November as well. So we may be looking at a very different picture um, uh, come November. But um, yeah, just getting through the next few weeks, I think, is on top of mind at this point. So that is right. I think I think people are worried about how to keep themselves and their families safe and how to keep themselves healthy. And, um, you know, healthy and safe means also um, economically secure uh, people. People don't want this to result in long-term crisis, um, long-term poverty. Uh, we don't want that as a, as a nation. And I'm grateful that we have leaders in Congress. I think um, Speaker Pelosi and um, Senator Schumer, as well as Senator Murray and, Senate, and Representative DeLauro, have been incredible leaders in this fight. And that was Deborah Ness, president of Partnership for Working Families. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for this episode is What to Do When the World is on Fire, a podcast interview with Kelly Hayes, host of the Movement Memos podcast and Truthout, and Australia-based activist Vanamali Herman. This interview is, in my view, a good counterpoint to the panicked and confused government response, as well as to the doom and gloom of the mainstream media coverage. In the face of a crisis like COVID-19, our impulse is to look toward authority, often to snap into a mode of extreme obedience, sealed by a mix of fear and paranoia. And it's easy to slip into the comforting notion that following orders from a centralized government authority is the key to containing and stamping out a massive global health threat. Conversely, some people might give up on the government altogether and hunker down in their survival bunker. Neither of these responses, needless to say, is ideal. Hayes and Herman's conversation focuses on mutual aid. It's not a naive discussion about DIY disaster relief that doesn't involve public institutions and state agencies. Rather than fall into doomsday prepper tropes, they talk about how communities can organize support networks to let peers help each other and lean on each other and local institutions for frontline healthcare services. Hayes discusses grassroots initiatives both to implement mutual aid and to hold authorities accountable to communities. She shares a list of demands that organizers can be making of city, state, and federal governments, which we'll link to. But she also notes that even though mutual aid can reduce harm and mitigate the worst impacts of crises like public health disasters and climate change, this type of direct action 
could have far more potential as a social catalyst for mass political action and consciousness raising. Hayes observes, this has been a learning experience for people like me, who have never imagined our organizing with the context of a pandemic. But we live in a time that compels us to imagine all manner of catastrophe, and we cannot divorce ourselves from those realities. Most people refuse to acknowledge the unthinkable until it becomes utterly undeniable, and that refusal always comes at a cost, unquote. The rest of the podcast revisits an interesting discussion from January, focused on Herman's experience dealing with indigenous rights and disability rights issues during the Australia wildfires. The lessons from that catastrophe, and from climate justice movements more generally, map quite well onto the social landscape of the current pandemic. Herman describes a Herculean effort by ordinary community members to get donations of masks and distribute them through a mutual aid network to people with disabilities and other social barriers. But in the end, despite these valiant efforts, it becomes clear that a full-scale response does require government intervention and the extent of the national government's neglect becomes truly apparent. As I noted in the previous conversation with Sarah, a public health crisis brings out the best and the worst in everyone. We see people like the uninsured, the poor, the undocumented being made even more vulnerable. We see racism and xenophobia on the rise. And we see the people who are wealthy enough to afford private protection exploit every privilege they have to insulate themselves from the impacts of the crisis. But a catastrophe can also clarify our thinking about how we prioritize our needs and what it means to act with social responsibility, especially in working class communities. I think about the numerous historical examples of militant labor strikes and demonstrations that leverage collective power and mutual aid among workers, not only to improve working conditions, but to demand a more just society. We live in a society with a much diminished labor movement today, but we'll see in the coming weeks whether labor can reorient itself away from economic pragmatism and short-term thinking and toward broader goals of medical leave, universal health care, and combating inequality in all its forms. Reflecting on how indigenous and disability communities are often, sadly, the so-called canary in the coal mine for impending disasters, Herman says, quote, I really, really wish the left would start to understand a bit better that the First Nations people know how to withstand a lot of these crises because we've had to. That's the same with the disabled community. You know, we know how to look after each other. I mean, knowing what needs to be done because we've had to do it before. Like, this is not the first time our lives have been put at stake, unquote. But relying on each other especially when we absolutely have to, shouldn't involve letting our elected officials, public agencies, and corporations off the hook, especially when they are largely responsible for getting us into all these messes. Hayes concludes, quote, We have to be fighting for that larger political transformation that creates a culture of care where this work isn't necessary. But I really think that whether a lot of people make it or not is going to depend on our willingness to take care of each other rather than just prioritizing our own well-being in moments of crisis. And it's incredibly heartening to see that happening, unquote. I have to say, in the context of this growing pandemic, I haven't seen much of that happening so far. I see a lot of panic around, and I see a lot of people grasping for solutions. But I also see very dedicated activists thinking hard about what mutual aid means when an entire society is at risk. We want to build a society that doesn't just survive. We want communities to flourish. It's true that environmental crises, public health crises, conflict, and other disasters brought about by corporate greed and government neglect all militate against this kind of long-term visionary thinking. That's all the more reason why we shouldn't let up on our demands for economic, environmental, and health justice. We still don't know how working people will fare as we face this growing pandemic, but it's clear that although the powers that be are already turning to private solutions, public health is a matter of collective vulnerability as well as collective power, and it's all of us or none. 
In the time of coronavirus, it's worth thinking, as Michelle and I were just saying, about the possibility of radically changing the world. That includes a Green New Deal, radically shorter working hours, expropriating all of Michael Bloomberg's wealth to fund vaccines for all, and so many other things that we could name. So for ARG, I decided to share with y'all a piece by friend of the show Bryce Covert at The New Republic on some new trials of universal basic income. The piece is titled, Can $500 a Month Change Your Life? And it follows a basic income trial currently underway in Stockton, California. Known as Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or SEED, the program is providing $500 a month to a group of Stockton residents for 18 months. Bryce writes, quote, Seed is seeking to answer some key questions. Can a basic income benefit not just people's finances, but their well-being in ways that could change their life trajectories? Or will the additional cash fail to make a meaningful difference? These questions have gained salience as work has become more precarious and wages have failed to keep up with an otherwise booming economy. Against these conditions, the thinking goes, basic income could offer every American, no matter their station or status and no matter the state of the economy, a financial net. Stockton, which seed research felt was a representative city because of the strength of its diversity and the concentration of its poverty was selected as the laboratory, end quote. It felt like I won the lottery, Jovan Bravo, one of the recipients, told Bryce. She explains how the study worked. Quote, at the end of 2018, copies of the same letter Bravo received were sent to 4,200 randomly selected households in Stockton neighborhoods with a median income of $46,000 or less, the median income for the city as a whole at the time. To make it as universal as possible, not just reach the most destitute people, the only other criterion was that recipients had to be at least 18 years old, explains Suki Samra, SEED's executive director. If someone in the household filled out a survey, they were randomly put in one of three groups. The treatment group, which would receive $500 a month for 18 months on a prepaid debit card and participate in surveys and interviews. The active control group, which would participate in the same surveys and interviews but only get $20 gift cards instead of the basic income. And the passive control group that would receive nothing but would be tracked through administrative data. End quote. The aims of the study's researchers, Amy Baker and Stacia West, are to find out, quote, how the money impacts the fluctuations in monthly or even weekly income among recipients, if changes in that volatility alter their financial, psychological, and physical well-being, and whether it generates agency over one's future, as they put it in their original plan. They're trying to measure, basically, if changing your financial situation can change your life, end quote. The system being trialed in Stockton is a progressive version of the basic income. It doesn't require participants to give up other social supports, as many conservatives or even Democratic presidential wannabe Andrew Yang have argued. And the trial has as its aim a way to make a practical argument for UBI using evidence. For Bravo, the seed money has allowed him to cut back his working hours and spend more time with his family. It goes for little extras as well as necessities. And as Bryce points out, in a crisis like this one, as confirmed layoffs are already happening and gig workers lose income, a basic income could go from a nice extra to a lifesaver, allowing people to stay home from work, avoid spreading illness, and recover on their own time. But most importantly, the money has allowed hardworking people the time to enjoy one another. Bryce writes... Like Bravo, one recipient was able to cut back on work and spend time with his kids. He's realizing his daughter is really funny. His son is really independent and creative, Samra said. He told her, these are traits I didn't have time to pick up on before Seed. 
That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on the St. Paul teacher strike, on nail salon workers and sex worker organizing, on the University of California fight, and of course, on the response to the spread of coronavirus. Thank you again to Descent for hosting us and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks to you for listening, for bearing with us while we took a month off. And even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. And an extra special thanks to all of our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag. We also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership or about the Solidarity subscription program at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can, as always, and as we have said earlier on the show, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a teacher on strike or a graduate worker fighting your university, a gig worker or healthcare service worker, or anybody else organizing around the spread of the pandemic. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>